Welcome to Word is Truth. This is Doug Presley. It is uh, 9-29-2021, and we're ready to begin our worship service. Let's have a word of prayer. We'll begin. Father, we thank you for uh, your grace. We thank you for life, health, and strength that you have provided us. We're still here in this world, and as such, we are depending on you, Father, for each day. So we thank you for traveling mercies, for, for Dad, who has been traveling on these dangerous roads. We, we pray uh, also for us that we will have traveling mercies in our travels. So Father, as we begin our study this evening, we are asking for wisdom as we approach the scriptures. We, Lord, it's our quest to know what your intentions are for us, what the scripture is telling us. So we're asking that you would give us the proper humility and wisdom so that we will know you better. All of this we ask in Christ's name and for his sake, amen. All right, so our normal course of study is in Romans chapter nine. Today, we're looking at verse 27. You should have notes. Um, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved. We'll talk about that perhaps a little later, but we will pause to see if we have any questions on the table, anything you guys want to discuss, not just questions, but thoughts. And the floor is open. I had a thought I could share. Oh, please do, go right ahead, Dwight. Um. I wanted to talk about um, praying. Uh, that's not necessarily one of my strong, my strengths. Um, you know, sometimes it's hard to sit down and consciously have a conversation with God, fellowship with Him. And uh, I think it's something that I'm intentionally challenging myself with and or to sit down, especially in the morning or at night, um, and take the time to pray and also meditate. And, you know, think about um, not only the things that I've learned in Scripture, but also just, you know, fellowship with Him like, a, like, a, like it's a daily thing. And um, maybe think about all the, the times that Jesus went off to pray very early in the morning before it was even light out. And you know, he, would, he would get away from everybody and just have some private time. And I kind of wonder um, what was the content of his prayer? And you know, what, what was, uh, was he praying for the same thing that we prayed for? Like, have a mercy. <laughs> um, or the wellness of uh, people that he's with, things like that. Are there ways that we can learn from what uh, Christ may have prayed for us? Well, um, I would say yes and no. <laughs> um, I'll start with the no first. And part of that is that, and I won't say just Christ, but I'm, I will talk more also about ourselves and our prayer. But there is, as you, I, and I know you know this, is there is public and private prayer. So private prayer, uh, I don't think we can know, and we shouldn't really know what, we pray, you know, others are praying privately to the Lord. So um, that's between them and God. And when we think about prayer throughout the day, um, 
some of what God's thinking uh, is in our lives is already manifest. Even if we are not praying, we are all, we have been changed. Our scale of values has changed. Our priorities are changed. And so we are working and thinking in conjunction with God, even unconsciously. So because we have given ourselves to, to, to the transforming process, God, his thoughts are in us. So we have to think about that. So as we contend in this world and we find difficulties, and we don't want to think about just praying when, when there's trouble, right? And only, only when there's trouble. Prayer is a mindset. It is an awareness of God. So when we think about Christ and he got alone uh, off to himself because he wanted to commune with the Father. So it, it is our consciousness and awareness of God in our lives. And the more we have that, the more close our conversations and our uh, awareness of the proximity of God is in our lives. So for instance, Christ said, uh, he said, all of you are going to leave me and desert me and run. And they did, they ran for their lives. But he says, I won't be alone because the Father is with me. So just to think about what that, all of, you know, that as we meditate on that thought, we realize that Christ had an awareness of the Father, even in times of stress. He knew the Father was with him and he, in his mind was communing with the Father all the time. This is something that is part of his existence, right? His, I'm all, I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father has commanded me. When you think about that, that's what he's saying is, I'm aware constantly of the Father. His words are in my mouth. This is not my will, it's the Father's will. These are not my words, these are the Father's words. And he didn't have to say, okay, now I'm going to say the Father's words. Why? Because that was, his mind was transformed by the Father's thinking. So it's not an attitude of, you know, every five minutes, oh, Heavenly Father, let me pray. And, you know, as we already said, public prayer is, has a life of its own. And, um, you know, the things we would pray for publicly are more general and non-specific. We're not going to lay our hearts out to God publicly. That should be private because it deals with matters of growth, success and failure, you know, and those battles only God knows. And so we deal with him that way. And there's yes too, we can know what Christ prayed because part of it is what we're going to study in John chapter 17. It is literally Christ's prayer to the Father. It is a wealth of information and knowledge that we have to look into what Christ is saying to the Father. It is, uh, we have to, when we get ready for John 17, we need to set expectations and perspectives because we don't want to just look at this as like, okay, this is like, oh, he's talking to his disciples. No, he's talking to the Father. Just the words that he used, the conversation, what he's dealing with is all so very telling about what we should be thinking. And it gives us a different perspective between the Son and the Father. So I think for those reasons, we, we cherish those things. Those things are very, very precious to us. So that's, I, I would pause to see if, if you have any thoughts or others, because prayer is, is open, uh, an open question still. Mm, um, I appreciate that, and making that distinction between public and private prayer. 
Um, and so, yes, I can see that there are things that we wouldn't necessarily know about what somebody, including Christ, is praying in private. Um, I, I wouldn't necessarily call, well, I, no, I, I would call it a public prayer. John chapter 17 is, is available to the entire world. So it, it is very public, even though it's intimately in fellowship with his father that he is, he is praying. Um, you know, I, it's not like he said, hey, keep this quiet, and then somebody blurted it out and started a rumor. <laughs> right. So you're um, right, you're right. It, it is... <laughs> It is private in one respect, and it is yet public. Yes, you're right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, but it's interesting uh, also, too, to think about... Um, it's hard to wrap my mind around uh, Christ having his mind being transformed. Well, uh, so no. he has the. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, so you mentioned that, and I could, you know, we can take a look at the scriptures and see that even at age 12, he was in the thing, you know, of, of course I'm going to be about my father's business, um, even, even at that young age. And, um, and then we don't hear from him for a couple of decades, um, and then he you hear about his mission on earth. Um, or you hear little things, like, such as the, um, the, wedding, the wedding in Cana, where he turns the water into wine. Um, and so that wasn't necessarily part of that three-year uh, ministry that he had. Um, so what, when, you, when you talk about um, Christ being transformed, what exactly are you referring to? Well, um, here here it is. Um, here's a scripture to consider. Uh, although, here it is. Uh, I think it's in Hebrews. So, there's a couple. Uh, if we go to Hebrews 2, um, it says... Um, verse 8 it says and put everything under his feet and putting everything under them God left nothing is that the one I want yeah it's 9 it's 289 yet nothing is subject to them yet at the present time we do see everything subject to them verse 9 but we do see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for a little while now crowned with glory and honor because of because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone and then if you go to Hebrews 5 8 it says um, because of his reverent submission son though he was he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. So thinking about what your thought was, Christ had to go through a lot. And I don't think we have everything uh, written about what he suffered and how he communicated with the Father directly. We do have the Garden of Gethsemane experience where... Uh, he, he and many theologians have looked at that and come up with some conclusions but we can still come up with our own conclusions but you could see Christ suffered and he prayed fervently to the Father and usually in scripture when something happens three times it is intense so what we can know about Christ's spiritual life and we do know that he was um, a man of sorrows and familiar with grief and suffering and that's coming from Isaiah 53 and prophecy regarding what he would be like we know that people didn't understand who he was 
and what his um, mission was all about. It says he was a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. And, and so you can understand why he would want to get away and commune with the Father, because there he found fellowship that he really did not have with the disciples until after they and, understood. Yeah, fellowship and refreshment, I would think. Agree, I, I'd agree, yeah. Yeah. So, and from those things, as you, the more and more you think about it, I would say you could see where he was and what his mindset was. I, I wouldn't say completely, but in, in some respects, when we talk about um, who he was and and even within his inner circle, he had uh, Peter, James, and John. And those three, he, he said, I'm only taking you three. The rest of them, you just wait here. And that happened more than once. So he had his disciples, and then he had an inner circle of his disciples. So that was important. When we think about uh, yeah, the, the trans, yeah, the transfiguration was another time. He only had a couple with him, right? Yeah, yeah, and this is right. So, in terms of his his life, the suffering that he went through, it was hard for him to uh, to navigate. I mean, he was human. He was human, but yet he couldn't use his divine power to. Um, free himself or extricate himself. He had to depend on the Father just like we do in every respect. So I would say that gives us a lot of insight because we have to do the same thing. And the disciples really didn't understand who he was until later, much later years later as they not only did they have to grow up and come to the understanding but uh, i read in first john it talks about our fellowship is with the father and with the son and he's saying even all the things we have in this life where we might find comfort and peace and i'd say you know this is a turbulent world and trouble all around us but we still manage to try to get some peace in our lives. But the real peace that we have, the real comfort and joy comes from fellowship. And that's what John in 1 John 1 is saying, that our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son. And I'm writing this to you, that your joy may be complete, and that you will have this fellowship that we have with the Father and with the Son because we're in the same dangerous world that they were in, the same dangerous world that Christ was in. So ultimately, um, when we look to God and we, we find, as you would say, refreshment, uh, it, should, it should re-energize uh, us, and, and I find that the fact that we have this study that is we come at twice a week where we can we can talk about the things that are really important to us these things and we may talk about these things but really what we're saying is we're hanging our life on this it, it is that important to us that we we're willing to give ourselves to it submit to it just like Christ with his reverent submission learned obedience from the things that he suffered so we would I would say have the same course and we're, we're not going to talk about the mode of prayer and how to pray and all that and how often because that really wasn't the thought but all of those things we've talked about in the past. I will pause. Yeah, thanks. Um, I think you, you validated a lot of, of what I was thinking about in terms of um, what the prayer 
what Concord Prayer is, is really about. Um, and and I was when I when I heard the word uh, transformation, like transform you know, by the renewal of your mind, I'm thinking Romans, you know, twelve one and two. Um, but obviously, Christ's suffering and even even the tribulations that we face um, go beyond that. It, there's really a, a daily contact with um, a conscious contact with God that's necessary to understand um, or to uh, thrive in in the midst of a crooked generation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's interesting because I, I think for us on this call, um, Sundays and Wednesdays, like you said, we do experience a, a great depth of understanding of doctrine um, that a lot of people don't um, don't benefit from. They, they don't put themselves in in that in that place with humility and curiosity about what is what does God say in His Word and what does He need. Um, and so for the other five days of the week, though. <laughs> Um, and, and kind of like it's almost dependent on that um, individual study and private prayer with God. So, in a way, I guess, I guess what I'm saying is that it, it might be nice to have some sort of fellowship more than um, more than twice a week. But it doesn't always have to be, you know, hour hour and a half or something or more. Um, but, you know, just to check in with each other. I think that's a great idea. I mean, we have to, um, you know, I think part of our uh, fellowship is, you know, we have to live in this world. So there are things that um, God has provided for us in order to live in this world. So beyond that, though, yeah, I, I would agree that there's there's probably times when uh, we could help one another, especially when it comes, and it's not even just help, it's just refreshment from the rigors and the toil, you know, it, it, it is helpful, you know, to find those times where we can just chat about, especially when we, we are talking to people who understand where we are and what motivates us and what's important to us. Right, right. Yes, I think that that's part of my point. Um, so during the other five days of the week, it, it's very difficult uh, to find anybody um, that would be willing to discuss or able to discuss the doctrine um, that we appreciate, the mystery, um, the deeper things of God. Absolutely. Um, and, and yet even at the surface level, it's, it's hard to get people off the surface, and it's even hard to agree what's just underneath the surface. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's, a, it's, even, it's a lot of challenges out there. Even as we talk about Romans, right? And I, I, in some ways, when I look at commentaries and I read, you know, so for preparing for study and trying to look at words. Um, what is the person saying? What's going on here? What does what do the commentary say about it? I just want to be abreast of what's happening. In some ways, I feel like it's fellowship. So reading reading is uh, someone else's comments is almost like talking to them. That's how I see it. But when I don't agree with them, that it takes a different turn. It's not fellowship anymore. Uh, it's discernment. There's a lot of other words I could think of. Um, and I, I would confess that when I look at the scriptures, it's not like I know every single thing I'm going to say. Uh, that's not how it works. Not for me. i got to go through and see exactly what these things mean in context. So a lot of the questions and things that I bring up in the points that I'm laying down are questions that I've asked myself about the text and have to answer. I feel honestly, I have to answer these questions. And you know, if it were me 
you know, on the other side of this. I would want to know those things too. And so, so part of our conversation when it comes to theology is not just, well, um, what is it, what is it, that, you know, going back and forth with myself and, and then you, but then you, it's also developing hopefully in you that inquisitiveness um, where you may ask questions that I don't know about or that I would not have thought about. So you could add to the conversation as well, uh, not just be a listener, which I'm listen. I'm pleased <laughs> that everybody listens, that anybody listens to me. <laughs> I am always pleased and thankful. <laughs> but um, if you wanted to contribute, you certainly have that opportunity. And that's where, where I want to make what we do uh, you know, a part of uh, something everybody can contribute to, not just me digging what I can think, because I'm only one perspective. I'm going to see things from the Doug perspective. But that's not the full, rounded perspective that we want. We want, every, we want to know what this scripture is saying, and I don't think that I have uncovered everything or every scripture that's relevant. So, you know, when I, when I prepare this stuff and put the notes together, it's thoughts. But I haven't certainly thought the last thought on, these, on the, the, the scriptures. So I'll pause. I see our time is moving forward here. Closing comments. Yeah, about the time. Yeah, before we get to Romans, closing comments. Anybody? Yes, um, you know, the way pose a question about uh, prayer. We're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ who walked on this earth uh, in his fellowship with the Father. Which spurred uh, a question, and we can go into it at another time, but I kind of would like to address the, uh, you know, you know, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, if this, if, he, if possible, let this cup pass from me. And we're talking about some of the worst, the worst time in earth's history is when Christ was paying for the sins of the world and he screamed for three straight hours, with, uh, you know, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And, you know, at that time, uh, when he was paying for the sins of the world, um, I know I've heard in some circles that God, the Father, uh, had to turn his back on Christ, as it were, because he couldn't be associated with the sin. So, you know, so is it accurate that God, the Father, did turn his back on the Lord Jesus Christ while he was paying for the sins of the world because his character couldn't handle, in other words, it didn't incorporate sin. And, you know, when Christ was screaming on the cross as he bore the sins of all mankind, past, present, and future, uh, you know, the scriptures kind of point to he went this alone. And uh, so, you know, that's kind of my question, but we can address this another time. So, well, that's a great question, Fred. I would, <laughs> uh, I, I don't want to address that that question so uh, quickly. I want to take time with that. I really do, because I, I really like the question. I think it's important for us to know. Uh, I think there are some misconceptions in this of how God. Uh, deals with sin you know you know some statements of how god he cannot look upon sin well he looks upon it every day what do you mean <laughs> it's not to say he consents to it in any way he's allowing this to go on 
But anyway, um, so we we need to talk about that. How what happened? Did Father turn another, his back? another time, sir? Yes. Did he really turn his back on Jesus and all of that? So I, 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 I definitely want to give some time to that, if you don't mind. Yes, sir. Let's move on into Romans, and we can talk about this another time. Yeah, but a very good question, and we certainly will. Re I'm going to remember to talk talk to this um, another time. So thanks for the question, and thanks for all the questions, Dwight as well, and thoughts. And we're going to move into Romans, so you should have notes, and we are... We are in verse 27. It says, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant will be saved. In your notes, for from Israel's past, they should know that God will bring judgment when he needs to send a message regarding their disobedience. There were serious consequences for Israel's disobedience. Quote, all the nations will ask, why has the Lord done this to, the, to this land? Why his, this fierce burning anger? And the answer will be, it is because this people abandoned the covenant of the Lord, their God, of their ancestors, the covenant he made with them when he brought them out of Egypt. That's Deuteronomy 29:25. Unfortunately, the lessons of the past do not help Israel. By rejecting their Messiah, they would be subject to more discipline. Also, in their trying to block the Father's eternal purpose, they are standing on dangerous ground. So we're... You know, I started to take two verses here, but uh, I said, well, we'll just stick to this one and cover it, hopefully, in de the detail it deserves. So this first phrase, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. As we saw last week with Hosea, we have another example in Isaiah regarding judgment. So yet another example. And if you look at Israel's history, and if you know and have studied or, or are, I should say, or are a student of the Old Testament, then what you see is a history of God judging Israel, blessing Israel, establishing Israel, judging Israel again. You know, Israel went into so many uh, times of judgment. Uh, they did not fare very well. They broke the covenant. They re and then... The culmination of it all was when they rejected their Messiah. God said he was going to send a Messiah. They waited for this time, and yet they are still waiting for this time. This can only be bad when we think about the ungodliness that is in Jacob. So we're going to see a lot of judgment some of the prophecies of judgment can be used even more than once because not only did they go uh, the Assyrian captivity the Babylonian captivity Rome and others have uh, and then the restoration periods of their rebuilding and uh, and how many sermons have you ever heard on Nehemiah building the wall and so forth and so on it just goes on and on their destruction and then their restoration and so forth and so on. Even in Revelation, where it talks about Israel will be rebuilt, uh, the temple and so forth. And it just, this is part of the history. If you know anything about the Old Testament, then you know about all of these things. So um, we did see part of that in Hosea. Now, why is God directing us here through the, the Apostle Paul? It's because... Israel was, as I said in the opening, standing on shaky ground by blocking, trying to block the Father's eternal purpose. What do you mean the Father's eternal purpose? The church. So imagine that, that you're sitting in the first century church 
and there's fighting going on, racial prejudice. Jews hate the Gentiles. Gentiles hate the Jews. And all of this bitterness and, and the bad blood between the races comes from, a, really, when you think about it, a rejection of the Father's eternal purpose. Because who, who's the one that put Jews and Gentiles together in one body? Somebody might comment and say, wow, this is a terrible idea. Who's responsible for this? Well, it's the Father who did this. This is his eternal purpose. If you don't like it, like Peter, when the sheet was let down and all manner of beasts were in this sheet, this is a vision Peter had. And God said to Peter, rise, kill and eat. Peter said, no way would I eat. There's unclean beasts. I'm a Jew. I don't eat. There's no way I would eat anything unclean. And this happened three times. So finally, after the third time, God had already been working with Cornelius and sent, sent uh, them to Peter's house. So all of that unfolded. But just know that this is the Father's plan, that Jews and Gentiles, that he would pull from Jews, not just Jews, but Jews and Gentiles to make the body of Christ. Those who are in the body of Christ have um, cultures from Jewish and Gentile cultures. So just, just know that this is how it works. This is par for the course, right? God's not only having people like Pharaoh reject his plan where God was trying to establish Israel as a nation and who's in the way? Pharaoh's in the way. So we are seeing that played out even when people reject the church and the standards that God has provided, the, the divisions, the divisions that he has uh, caused between the church and Israel. Some people reject that. Well, really, they should know. They are rejecting the Father's eternal purpose. Uh, so it's sad to think about it. Uh, but Israel is the main ones who are raising an objection. They're saying, no way. The word of, if, if you do this, God, then the word of God has failed. That's what they're saying. God has got to defend that, and he is. But don't think he's going to let Israel off the hook easy. Don't think. And that leads me to the second point here. God has always warned Israel through the prophets. Hosea's life illustrated Israel's judgment and restoration. And then I threw this one scripture in Zechariah 13, 8 through 9, because we already read about uh, Hosea last week. So we're going to, let's look at Zechariah 13, uh, 89. This is a familiar passage. Just in, I, I know, not Zephaniah, it's Zechariah. Zechariah 13, 8 and 9 says, In the whole land, declares the Lord, Two-thirds will be struck down and perish, yet one-third will be left in it. This third I will put into the fire. I will refine them like silver and test them like gold. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is our God. So there it is. God is interfacing with Israel. But notice how two-thirds of them, uh, got, he says, two-thirds will be struck down and perish. Only one-third will be left. And then that one-third has to go through the fire. He will refine them as, and test them like gold, like silver and gold. So this is how, this is the scenario of how all of this goes when you think about Israel, and that is what's going to happen in the tribulation. Or Israel, there will be mass murder, destruction, mayhem, all sorts of things going on, bloodshed like you would not believe, and yet this is the most horrible time to live on this earth. 
it's going to affect the whole world and Israel is going to be at the center of it when it comes to suffering. So just to know uh, it's going to be the time of trouble. That's what the Bible talks about. We, we have a scripture later in that, so we'll get to that. So point C, recall the Jews are not grieved because Gentiles can be saved. Gentiles were saved in the Old Testament from the beginning of time. Now just to know this point, the reason why I have to make this point in the first place is because if you read a lot of the commentaries, their focus is, oh, well, this whole thing is talking about that the Jews don't like the fact that salvation has come to the Gentiles. That's not it at all. Uh, the Gentiles were saved. In fact, Gentiles were supposed to be saved through the nation Israel. And so it wasn't just the fact that Gentiles were, can have salvation. Gentiles could always have salvation since the beginning of time. Now, of course, you, you really don't have the Jew entering in until God forms the Jew through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jew, a Jew is from, and you know, if you ever talk to Jewish people, they will try to correct you on, you know, when you're talking about uh, Hebrews and Jews. Jews come from Judea, and Judea didn't come around until a lot later. But that's not a point to make because Jews call themselves Jews even when they are speaking of Abraham. Abraham was, we can't say Abraham was the first Jew. This is, they will take issue with you about it. Abraham was the first Hebrew. Jews came from Judea when the, when the northern and southern kingdom split. Anyway, it, it's not a conversation really. It's not important. But anyway, um, so just know that it is not about Gentile salvation. It's about, you know, you know and this is what the commentaries, the reason why the commentaries say this is because they can't see any other purpose in Romans 9 past salvation. So they are only looking at salvation being the primary objective of God, not that God's eternal purpose is to bring many sons into glory and he has this plan. He even had the plan for Israel to be the priest nation of the world right, so that they could evangelize other nations. But in their mind, it's all about getting saved. Uh, so that's a false assumption. I just need to throw this in here, this point, just to make sure that people don't get hung up on what they are saying. Almost every commentary I read, don't they, don't, they don't see it. So what, what do they resort to is salvation. Point D, let's move on. The Jews were grieved that there is a dispensational change and we are no longer under the Mosaic law. So it's not about salvation, it's about a new dispensation that has dawned. And as we already say here, uh, that salvation is the same in every dispensation. So if it was about salvation, it shouldn't, it shouldn't matter because really on the Jewish people were under a deception as well about salvation because they were thinking that salvation is by the fact that they have the law and their attempts to keep the law is why God would favor them. They were wrong. Totally wrong about that thought. So they were what they were mad about was the fact that this is a new dispensation that has dawned. So Paul talks about it in Ephesians 3, 5. I'm just going to read it really quick. Not that we haven't read this before. Ephesians 3, 2, through five. Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace, which was given to me for you. Now that's, that word administration is the word oikonomia. So it's really a compound Greek word. Oikos means house. Uh, the, and the rest of it means administration, how someone administers or rules over 
his household, right? That's what the word is made up of. So Paul is saying, there's, have you, you've heard about the, the administration or dispensation of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery. Now, so it, not only we talk about mysteries are things that were hidden in God, but it was an age. So this dispensation or this administration of God ruling over his household in a certain way was hidden. It was a mystery wasn't available. People didn't know about the time in which we live now. They didn't know. wasn't made known. Paul's saying, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace, which was given to me for you. That is, what is it, Paul? It's the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already written briefly. And reading this, then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. Now, it's not the mystery, the fact that nobody knew Christ was coming. In the Old Testament, they constantly referred to Christ's coming. And Christ, they would say, is called Messiah. And then they would say it in a Jewish twang. But we're just going to say the Christ, because it's the same thing. So, really... Right. being able to understand the mystery that is about Christ. And he goes on, if you keep reading, he keeps telling you more about the mystery. It's not just in verse 6. It keeps going all the way down to the end of the chapter and into the next chapter. He's, this is all he's talking about. So, so back to the notes to know, and there's another verse when we think about it. Uh, so there is a new dispensation. This is what they were so mad about, uh, the Jews, in, in the first century. So we go to Acts chapter 15, 1 through 5. So this is what they wanted, right? They wanted people to keep the Mosaic law. That was a previous dispensation. And even in that dispensation, salvation was by grace. Of course, they didn't believe it. They didn't think that was the case. They thought they were privileged because they had the law. So Acts 15, 1, certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. There it is. In one verse, you have, um, there they want to keep the Mosaic law. So, And they thought that there were things in the Mosaic law that you needed to do in order to be saved. And was it only about salvation? No, it was a way of life. So let's just read it. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some others, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. It was big. Uh, so the church sent them on their way. And they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, and, and they told how the Gentiles had been converted. The news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Verse 5, then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, they were believers now, stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. So what are they saying? They're saying, we think that if Gentiles are going to be in our body, they got to go through uh, what we call the conversion of a Gentile to a Jew, which, which is you have to be circumcised, you have to keep the Mosaic law, and so forth. That's not what the truth is in this age. We are not under the law. So that's the main thing they were mad about because this new dispensation. But this dispensation is hidden. It's, that's why it's called, Paul calls it a mystery. It was not revealed. So the Jews couldn't say, yeah, oh yeah, we knew this was coming. No, they didn't know it was coming. So um, that's what they were grieved about. It was not about that the Gentiles could have salvation. It was that the Gentiles... And they and the Gentiles were in the same body, and there was no Mosaic law. Point D, the Jews were grieved that there is a... Oh, I, I, this is the one I read, and uh, I think we already covered point D. Point number two is where we are. 
Though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea. Yeah, that's huge number if you think about it. Point A, uh, what we have here is another warning to Israel of pending judgment. So why are we saying pending judgment where it says the number of the Israelites be like the sand of the sea? Uh, let's look at it because it goes from Isaiah. Paul is quoting from Isaiah 10, 22 and 23. Let's read it officially since he's quoting it. Let's read what Isaiah actually said. And I'm getting to it. Stand by. Isaiah 10. And here it is. 22. Though your people... Oh, okay. Should, should I read the previous? Yeah, I think so. Let's go from 20. In that day, the remnant of Israel, the survivors of Jacob, will no longer rely on him who struck them down, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. A remnant will return. A remnant of Jacob will return to the mighty God. Though your people be like the sand by the sea, Israel, only a remnant will return. Destruction has been decreed, overwhelming and righteous. So think about it. God is, he's destroying them righteously. But, you know, in Isaiah 28, when we have studied about tongues and in other places, God calls it his strange act. Why does he call it his strange act? It's because He's their God, Israel's God, and at the same time, he's disciplining Israel in such a harsh way. He has to do it righteously. He has to, he has to uh, hold them to the covenant that they agreed to. So this is to say that, this is why I say this is about judgment. It's the first point. Number two, it's a warning of pending judgment. So Israel goes through this many times as we said before so uh, the sand by the sea and point b god prophesied that israel would be numerous from their very beginning so if you go to isaiah 51 we're already in isaiah 51 12 let's look at it real quick since we're already there um, there's a lot of scriptures here uh, we'll see if we can cover them 51 12 says i even i am he who confronts you who are you that you fear mere mortals? Oh, wait a minute. Did I have that scripture right? I think I got it wrong. 51.12. Oh. Yeah, I must have that. I must have that wrong. Yeah. I'll have to look that one up. Let's go to the next one. To see why I have that one wrong. So this was, this is, I must have transposed it. Genesis 12, 2 says, Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord himself is my strength and my defense. He will become, oh, wait a minute. That's not Genesis. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Today is not a good day. Okay, so Genesis 12, 2 says, I will make you into a great nation. The previous scripture, I will find it, don't worry. It said something about, um, of, of one man, Abraham, I have made, uh, and Sarah, it talks about he, how, how many he has made from that one man. It talks about it. That's what Isaiah 51. So, so again, we are seeing Genesis 12 too. This is uh, where God initially promised Abraham what he was going to do. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a, a blessed. All will be blessed through you. So, and, um, and it's 1 Kings 4.20. 1 Kings, well, I'm curious to see if I got everything right here. 1 Kings 4 and 20 says, the people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They ate, they drank, and they were happy. And 
Let's keep going. Uh, the last scripture I have is Hosea 1.10, which we already know because we read it last week, where uh, it talks about the same thing. Hosea chapter 1, verse 10. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. And the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. So again, uh, we saw how in, um, how numerous, it's just a metaphor, they will be like the sand by the sea, how they will be multiplied, how Israel will multiply. In fact, we talked about this another time, how Israel is still here and God is continuing to prosper this people because they will have a role at the end of human history. Point C, 2C that is, Israel will go through many judgments. And we should know that there is the greatest time of trouble just ahead for them. So just note, Israel's not finished going through times of trouble, what we call the tribulation. In fact, this is Jeremiah 36 and 7. I will go there. Jeremiah 30, 6 and 7. Let's see if we can get there. So 6 says, Ask and see, can a man bear children? Then why do I see every strong man and his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor, every face turned deathly pale? How awful that day will be. No other will be like it. It will be like a time of Jacob, a time for, for Jacob, but he will be saved out of it. A time of trouble for Jacob, but he will be saved out of it. And then Matthew 24, 21 and 22, as you already know about. Matthew 24, 21 and 22. For then will be great distress unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. So this is a time of trouble that is yet to come on the nation Israel and this world. It's a rough time that is coming. So point number three, only the remnant will be saved. So, and this is same at the end of time, it's the same as what Israel's history has been. As we saw in Zechariah 13, 18, 8 and 9, there will be a purging. Hosea demonstrated this for us as well concerning Israel in Hosea 1.10, which we already read. So just to note, this is a pattern. This is a theme. This is what um, point B is a remnant. When we think of remnant, this is a constant theme for Israel. They disobeyed, they were judged, but God preserved a remnant. That's been the common theme that you read about all throughout the Old Testament. So point C is even now. And what was God's answer to him? And this is a quote. This is from Romans 11, 4 through 5. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So, two, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Now, when he says there's a remnant chosen by grace, he's talking about the church age. Right, the Jews thought, "Woe is me! Woe is me!" Who, you know, they uh, has God cast away His people, which He foreknew? Right, that's eleven one, and He's answering that question by saying, "There, even at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace," and He's talking even even about Himself because we've spoke about this. That right now, Jews can be saved. All they have to do is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they will have eternal life as simple as that and those and there were those who have believed and are saved like the apostle paul for instance so point d another one in the tribulation and here it is in revelation chapter 12 and verse 17 
And this is the final remnant, I would say. But this is what it says. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman. The woman is Israel. If you read by context there. And went, to, went off to make war against the rest of her offspring. Who are they? Those who keep the commands, God's commands, and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. So they, they have, uh, they're still under the law, the, but it's not the Mosaic, it's the new covenant because they believe in Jesus. That's Revelation 12, 17. So this is so common about, as I said, there's a theme of, of God's, of Israel's disobedience, God's judgment, the destruction decreed, and then a remnant that God saves. Same thing we read in Hosea last week, where Israel, where the northern kingdom was destroyed, but a remnant was saved. And what happened, that remnant united with Judah, the southern kingdom, and that's how they continued on. And as it says there, they shall be as the sand on the seashore. So point E is last. If you want some homework and you have some time, if you have a concordance, and if you don't have eSword, we love eSword here, and there's no mistake in that. It is the best Bible software. I certainly uh, would say that. I've been using this for over, I don't know how many years, 25 years. But if you have a concordance and you want to look up the word remnant, just look at that to see how many more scriptural references to this theme that we've talked about, This, how many times it is mentioned about Israel. And I already just quoted a couple, a few. Um, we saw some last week, but that is just the tip of the iceberg about how much uh, content there is about this theme of the destruction and so forth and the remnant being saved. So we've come to the end and uh, this verse and we want to just continue to recap what is going on. Why does the apostle continue to talk about judgment? And it is because uh, we are in a new dispensation. And God has stopped the clock of Israel. There is nothing going on for Israel right now. Because if anybody believes in Christ in this age, they are in the church. And where there is no Jew, there is no Gentile. We are one in Christ. And we are not under the law. So this is a new dispensation. Israel is having a problem with that. and But when it's over and we are caught up to meet the Lord in the air, then um, Israel will again be on this earth and God will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I will take away their sins, saith the Lord. So uh, right now they're enemies, as we said before, but notice the apostle is dealing with judgment. It's not about Gentile salvation. I've seen too many commentaries. Sorry for my uh, rehearsing that over and over because this is what you're going to find when you go out and ask people. They're going to have read the commentaries. They're going to think they really are up on, up on these verses when really there's nothing here about Gentile salvation. We'll get more into this as we go forward. And, and it does talk about Gentiles. We're going to deal with this as we go forward in the context. Let's uh, bow our heads as we close. Thank you, Father. We're so grateful that you have given us the detail. And not only the detail of what you were talking about, but examples of what Israel needs to pay attention to. And as you, you have clearly stated, they have crossed a line by questioning your sovereignty. But we thank you that as transparent as you are in this age where you have given more grace 
than anybody could possibly even understand your sovereignty in giving grace and choosing us that we are just in awe of your marvelous plan so father as you deal with israel and we see your patience and all that israel has gone through over and over destruction and restoration we thank you as we are seeing your faithfulness to israel and we realize also your faithfulness to us because that is who you are in your character we thank you father for your goodness for your love and mercy in this world all this we ask in christ's name and for his sake amen 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 amen